Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Jess is going to be uh, walking through chapter 3. Find the few verses from chapter 3, verse 7. We'll be just reading a few verses from there. It'll be on the screen, but Jesse will be walking us through the whole chapter. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Jesse. But as Jesse comes up, uh, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we had a little farewell for Ross and Rosie and Jesse and Gina. This is Jesse and Gina's last Sunday with us. As <laughs> do you want to just remind us or those people who weren't here, what are you moving to? This week? Sure. Yeah, on Tuesday, we're moving to New South Wales uh, into a little place called Evans Head, uh, where I've I've got a job there doing a couple of days teaching religion in a school uh, and then a few days at the church there as well. So we'll be moving down there on Tuesday. Tuesday, it all starts. That's an exciting opportunity for you both. New church family, closer to your own family down that way, but also an opportunity two days a week uh, teaching uh, religion at the Evans Head High School there. Uh, and as well as youth stuff and related stuff in their local church, which is awesome. Yeah. I might just pray for you now and commit you Thanks. guys to you before you uh, preach to us. Dear Father God, again, we just thank you for change and opportunities, Lord, to live our lives, to encourage others in their walk with you. And we do pray for Jesse and Gina with this another transition in life, a big move for them to resettle, to make new friends and new church, but also the opportunity to speak about Jesus in schools, which is such a rare opportunity. So, Lord, we commit them to you with this change, that you would sustain them, help keep them focused and and to not doubt, and that you would strengthen them in all they do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Thanks, Russ. All right, let's let's pray again before we get into it um, for us, that we'll hear God's word today. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, um, please help us to hear your word. May we uh, uh, listen to what you have to say to us uh, and that we might hear you speak. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Matthew Webb was a guy in the 1800s who put his confidence in the wrong thing, himself. Matt's got his own Wikipedia page because he was the first man to ever swim across the English Channel solo. Now, the English Channel 
uh, is the water between England and France. It's about 34 kilometers across open ocean with nothing in between. It's freezing cold, wild seas, no landmarks but the two shorelines. Less than 2,000 people have ever, ever swum it solo, and Matt was the first guy. <laughs> in 1875, he took, it took him 22 hours to complete it. He'd done the impossible. But when someone bet him two grand to swim the Niagara Falls, he couldn't resist. Clearly it was impossible, but maybe if Matt wanted it enough, maybe if he'd tried hard enough, maybe he would be good enough. Matt placed his confidence in his own capabilities, and unsurprisingly, his confidence was poorly placed, and the swimmer of Niagara Falls didn't go so well. Turns out, the impossible is, at times, impossible. Matt put his confidence in the wrong place. He thought if he wanted it enough, if he tried hard enough, surely he'd be good enough. It's easy for us to sit there and think, well, was this guy kidding himself? How could you be so stupid? But the Bible says we do the same thing. When it comes to getting to heaven, having eternal life, we think if we want it enough, if we try hard enough, surely we'll be good enough. I think it's pretty safe to say we'd all love to live a little bit longer, perhaps even forever, especially if it's in a perfect world. But can any of us be confident that we'll live forever? Is there any way for us to feel secure in eternal life? And in what or in who can we put our confidence? Our passage today starts with two groups of people. One group place their confidence in religion and the things they do, while the other place their confidence in Jesus. Take a look at the first two verses. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul urges the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, but to watch out for this first group of people, which he calls dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now, it's obvious that these descriptors aren't compliments. Paul's not talking about your pet dog at home when he says dogs. He's talking about wild dogs that prowl around, savage dogs that bite and spread disease and attack. Picture the kind of dog you'd see in your nightmares, not the dog that's on your couch at home. So whoever Paul's talking about, they're clearly dangerous. They're a serious concern and threat to God's people. But who are these people exactly? Well, Paul also calls them mutilators of the flesh. This term normally describes people who cut or mutilated their bodies in rituals and sacrifices, people who put on a display of desperation in the attempt to get God's attention. But reading these verses in the context of what's to come in verses 4 to 6, we see that Paul isn't just talking about the religious extremists here. What's so striking about Paul's words is that he's more likely referring to the Jews and the Pharisees. Paul's claiming that the old traditional leaders of God's people are just as dangerous as the crazy religious extremists who mutilate their bodies for other gods and idols. This is a ridiculous thing for Paul to say. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were the good guys. They were the pastors and the elders of the time. They were the people who were supposed to be protecting God's people. But Paul calls them savage dogs, mutilators of the flesh. 
Why is Paul speaking so strongly against the good religious people? They're the ones he should be praising and encouraging. But why does he call them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh? Well, it's because he's speaking from experience. Take a look at verses 4 to 6. I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul himself used to be one of those religious leaders, and he was the best of the best too. See how he followed all their rituals and was born to the most righteous of families? As a Pharisee, he was of the highest rank in their order. As a persecutor of Christians, he was the most zealous of all religious leaders. He was even an obedient rule keeper, following their law to perfection. If Paul was around today, he'd be the guy who was born into a family who'd been religious for generations. He'd have been baptized as a child. He'd been raised in all the right ways that he attended church every day of his life. Read the Bible morning and night without fail. He'd boast about praying at least three times a day and serve more hours than anyone else at church. Whoever you think is a perfect religious person, that was Paul. He was the best of the best when it came to religion. And so, if anyone's going to be saved through religion, it's him. Paul clearly began as a guy who put his confidence in the flesh, meaning in religion and the stuff he's done. But that's not the whole of Paul's story. Look at verses 7 to 8. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What a complete 180. Paul's gone from being a man to whom religion was everything to being a man who considers any religion loss as garbage. He's done a complete 180 here. Has he gone from seeing religion as everything to seeing it as worthless, unhelpful, even harmful and dangerous? Why does he think all this good religious stuff is trash? Surely it's through religious performance that he'll be saved. Well, the key is that he's, what's he replaced it with? So see how he's converted to something, which is Jesus and the worth that's found in him. What could Jesus offer that's more likely than religion to bring us salvation? Take a look at verse 9. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Most of us come to the realization at some point in our lives that we aren't all that good. We might brush it away or ignore it for a while by giving excuses, thinking, I'm not as bad as everyone else. On the whole, I'm pretty good. Surely I've at least done more good than bad. But the problem is, Only the righteous are saved. Only those who've lived up to the standards God set for us in his word. 
The issue with religion is that most of the time we're fooling ourselves into thinking that if we follow a set of rules that we've made up, that we'll be all good. If I just want it bad enough, if I just try hard enough, then we'll be all good. Like Paul and the religious guys of his time, he thought that what mattered was uh, to God was where you were born, your rank in society, how many Christians you put in prison, or whether you got the job. We too get it all wrong when we try and think up God's what God really wants. Whatever picture that we've got in our heads of what a good person should be is probably wrong in more ways than one. Setting our own standards is not how it works. According to the Bible, we aren't the judge of our own lives. We don't determine what's right and wrong and who's good and bad as much as we would like to. It's not about how, how bad we want something or how hard we try because right and wrong are embedded in creation by God and are further explained to his people like us in his word. And right and wrong isn't just the Ten Commandments, although most of us have probably failed those anyway. The standard God requires is so much higher. Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 sets this out for us. To be righteous by God's standards is impossible. It's God who sets the rules, and we all fall short of meeting his standards. None of us even come close, which is why Paul considers anything religious to be garbage. Anything that we do in our own efforts is going to fall short. Righteousness by the law is unachievable. We can't meet God's standards and be saved through religious effort. No matter how hard we try, no matter how bad we want it, we're always going to come up short. Religion can't be our saviour. It either crushes us with failure or drives us insane with living up to perfection. Salvation has to come from somewhere else which is where Jesus comes in. See how Paul gives us two places where righteousness can be found in verse 9. The first is unachievable because it's righteousness that comes from the law, but the second is achievable and is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, righteousness that comes not from us but from God. It's this righteousness that will secure salvation for us. See in verses 10 to 11 how faith in Jesus and being found in him means we can experience the power of his resurrection and be raised to life with him. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To believe intellectually that Jesus can make us righteous is where it all starts, but Knowing him intimately and personally in our very hearts and souls is where our confidence can be found. See how passionate Paul is in these verses? He wants to know Christ so deeply that he won't just know of his resurrection, but will experience his power of resurrection. Why Jesus is a better saviour than religion is because he has been raised to life himself. He was the first to be resurrected from the dead, and by the power of the Spirit we can be united to him too and follow him through death into life. What's different about the righteousness that comes through Jesus is that it's not dependent on what we do. It's not a, if you do this, then you get this. Instead, it's, do you believe Jesus did this? Then, follow him into glory. Where religion crushes us with an impossible standard to live up to, 
Jesus meets the standard for us and invites us to freely walk into eternal life. That's why he's a better saviour. Now, you can understand why it's hard for the Philippians to switch over from the old way of religion to this new way of faith. They'd grown up living the religious way for generations, trusting in their own efforts and good works, hoping that if they just tried hard enough, they'd be saved. Over Christmas, I was helping my two-year-old niece swing a full-size cricket bat. (laughs) And a moment when I thought, oh, yes, she's getting good at it when she's doing it with me, suddenly she goes, no, it's Jessie... I can do this myself. <laughs> and it just made me laugh because she was so motivated to try and do this, but she just had no chance of doing it. She thought if she could try it hard enough, if she just wanted it enough, then she could do it. But it just didn't happen. <laughs> no matter how bad she wanted to hit the ball, no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't do it. And we do this with God all the time, living in a way that says, God, I've got this. Don't worry about me. I'll, I'll work hard and try hard so you can focus on those really sinful people who actually need your help. But we still slip up in and sin. And we still need him to get through the challenges of every day. And there's no way that we'll be saved without him. Our efforts at living life without God are just as laughable to God as my niece's efforts at cricket. You could say they're almost as silly as Matt swimming Niagara Falls. But it just comes so naturally to us. And it's how we live for the rest of our lives, isn't it? We get the promotion or the grades or the spot on the team if we perform. We live in a world that cares about what we do, not what Jesus has done. But Paul urges us not to return to our old ways of self-reliance and rule following because they can't save us. Only Jesus can do that. And so... Verses 1 to 11 mark an amazing shift in history where a new way to be righteous was given. A way that doesn't depend on what we do or how we act, but a way that would make it possible for imperfect people like us to be saved. In Jesus, the markers of who God's people are shifted from those who are Jewish by birth and follow the law to those who, in verse 3 that we see here, are serving God by his Spirit, who boast in Jesus and who put no confidence in in what they've done themselves. God's people are those who have faith in Jesus. And it's his people who have complete confidence that they're considered righteous and will one day have eternal life. Where religion crushes us with our failure, Jesus allows us to rest. Our saviour, Jesus Christ, is where our confidence can be found. The resting in Jesus doesn't mean we just sit on the couch the rest of our lives. He's still called us to live for him. So how do we live a life that depends on Jesus and what he's done and not on ourselves? Well, it's harder than you think. Take a look at verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So how do we live a life depending on Jesus and not on ourselves? Well, we live like him, looking heavenward, 
and pressing on towards glory. If you're an elite athlete and you've made the Olympic team, you'd probably be a little bit relieved, but that's not the whole reason why you're there, is it? You're not there to just tick off Olympic team on your bucket list. You're there to march alongside legends of the sport and receive the applause of a stadium packed in the opening ceremony. You're there so you can line up at the start line with the greatest athletes in the world and to hear the gun go off and the crowd explode with a roar of excitement. You're there to experience the glory of victory and to taste that gold medal between your teeth. When we're considering righteousness in Jesus, we're justified before God's throne and we're worthy in his eyes from the beginning, but just like an Olympic athlete, we haven't attained the full blessing yet. We haven't reached our glorified state. The prize of resurrection eternal life is still waiting for us at the finish line. Being found righteous in Jesus frees us to press on with confidence towards our, heavenly, our goal in heavenly glory. Notice in verse 12 how Paul says Jesus took hold of us for more than just our conversion story. We've been saved so that we can freely press on towards our glorification. And see in verse 14 how he called us heavenward. He's called us to forget our old way of life, where we trusted in ourselves, and instead to take hold of this new life in him. But how do we pursue the glory that's ours in Jesus? Well, verses 17 to 21 give us three ways of doing this. Following the example of others, taking up our cross, and setting our mind on heavenly things. Let's step through the verses. In verse 17, we're reminded that we aren't called to pursue glory on our own. We're a team and need other people to set examples for us on how to live for Jesus. When Kobe Bryant, a two-time gold medalist, was asked if he was a better basketball player than Michael Jordan, he refused to agree, quoting that Michael Jordan had taught him so many things through observation and conversation. Kobe, though not the humblest of guys, knew that he'd only got to the point he did because he'd learnt from the best. He'd watched how they lived their lives and asked them questions about the things that they do and why they do them. And when we're looking to press on towards our prize in heaven, we've got to follow the examples set out for us as well, in Jesus and in other Christians. That's why Paul gave us so many verses on the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus last chapter as well as the example of Jesus that he gave before that. As much as we like to be trailblazers going our own way, we learn best and grow best from watching and speaking to other people on the same journey. We need each other to move towards our goal of heavenly glory. We're not individuals in this. We're moving towards our goal together. And then in verses 18 to 19, we get our next way to freely live pursuing our prize, and it's to take up our cross and follow Jesus through suffering into glory. In 18 and 19, Paul's in tears that some in the church are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Never mind all his imprisonments and beatings, those he walked away with rejoicing. It's the knowledge that some aren't willing to live freely for Jesus that brings him to tears. Living as enemies of the cross of Christ, their gods being their stomachs, these people weren't living for Jesus, but were pursuing earthly pleasures instead of heavenly glory. One of my happy places is on the couch, in front of the cricket, with a can of Coke and a packet of chips. The joy that I get from this experience is 
indescribable. But I can bet you that an Olympic athlete who's preparing for the Olympics will not be indulging in such a pastime. Everything they do will be geared towards their goal of tasting that gold medal between their teeth. And so if our goal is heavenly glory, we won't waste our time on pursuing and indulging in worldly pleasures. Like Paul says in verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and we're eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior from there, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Of course, we can enjoy the pleasures of life at times, but to pursue them and to live our lives based on what feels good now is going against the trajectory of our new lives. In Jesus, we know that our lives will end in glory. So it would be crazy for us to then leave Jesus and the life he encourages us to live to go off in pursuit of other things, especially when everything is so temporary, only offering us brief happiness. Living freely in pursuit of glory is, is relieving, but it's not easy. Living a life in pursuit of glory requires us to have a one-track mind, a mind that focuses on the game at hand, the matter of life and death. We can't afford to spend our lives gallivanting around after little earthly pleasures because the true prize is waiting for us in heaven. Yes, there's grace for us in Jesus. Praise God for that because we're bound to get distracted sooner or later. But just because we have an out doesn't mean we can go off and pursue a different prize. Jesus himself said we can't serve two masters. If we allow ourselves to live our whole lives pursuing something that, stuff that don't bring us closer to heavenly glory or worse, take us further away from our heavenly glory, we might just find that we never believed in Jesus in the first place, and that the now is more important to us than eternity. For Paul, it was religion, and everything that came with it that he had to let go of. For my friend, it was the person she loved. It was a guy she'd been with for a while, they seemed perfect for her in every way. They shared common interests. They complemented each other's personalities. And she genuinely loved him deeply. But he didn't know Jesus. She tried breaking up with him a few months earlier, but at the time, she just couldn't do it. He was just so right for her. She loved him too much to just throw him away. But at the same time, she felt like she was living a double life. She was living differently at church than she was when she was with him. And it was this realization that led her to reach out to other Christians, role models in her life, people who had a similar experience and knew how hard it was to pursue glory married to someone who wasn't. And eventually, through this process, she found the courage and the strength to say no to him and to say yes to Jesus instead. Can't imagine how tough that decision was for her. But it shows us that it's hard sometimes living for Jesus. It's hard when following our own way seems so good and so right. It's hard when we find so much joy in earthly things to give them up in pursuit of something that seems so far away. But we know that it's worth it. Religion can't help us, and earthly things are only good in the now. It's not about how bad we want it or how hard we try. We need Jesus if we want to be righteous. If we want to live a life that ends in salvation and glory. And so it's only right for us to pursue things that will draw us closer to our goal. 
It's good for us to press on towards heavenly things, knowing that it's better for us. I don't know what things you're prone to chasing, but we know that we've all got them. You might even have multiple at this moment. But as you walk away today, have a real hard think about the things in your life. What are the things that aren't drawing you closer to Jesus? What are the things that are taking you away from living freely in pursuit of glory? We don't have to feel guilt and shame in this. There's forgiveness and grace waiting for us in Jesus. But what are the things in your life that you'd really be better off without? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we don't need to earn salvation. Thank you that religion isn't the only way and that we don't have to put confidence in our own shaky performance. You've given us Jesus. Help us to take hold of you and the righteousness that you hold out to us in your Son. May we find rest in this, knowing we're safe in you. But Father, we also pray that you might fill us with your Spirit so that we might be able to live for you. Help us by your Spirit to set our eyes on heavenly things, to live lives geared towards the eternal glory that awaits us in Jesus. Father, in him we're citizens of heaven. In him we belong in your glorious presence. So help us to eagerly await the return of our Saviour Jesus. Help us not to lose sight of what we're living for. Help us to move towards our state of glory. Help us to give up the things in our lives that take us away from you and a life lived for you. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. Remind us that you hold these out to us every day of our lives as we stumble along for you. Even in our worst moments, be with us, lighting the way. We pray all this in Jesus' name, the one in whom our salvation and our rest is found. In him we pray. Amen.